Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Sophie White is Associate Professor of American Studies, Concurrent Associate Professor in the Departments of Africana Studies, History, and Gender Studies at the University of Notre Dame. She is a historian of early America with an interdisciplinary focus on cultural encounters between Europeans, Africans, and Native Americans, and a commitment to Atlantic and global research perspectives. Today, we'll be discussing her book, Voices of the Enslaved, Love, Labor, and Longing in French Louisiana. Dr. White, welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you tell us a bit about slavery under French law? For example, was there a formal bar against the enslaved reading and writing? How does this compare and contrast to law in English-controlled areas of colonial America? So the first thing to say is Louisiana is French until 1769. So just to get an idea of what period we're dealing with, and the French will allow the enslavement of Africans, but also Indians, although we'll be mostly talking about enslaved Africans today. In terms of your question about literacy, just to deal with that, there is no ban on reading and writing by the enslaved. But of course, that does not mean they are given access to literacy. So we only have a few references to literacy, hence a search for other types of source material. In terms of French law, the key aspect is that French law as pertains to slave is standardized. By that, I mean that the French empire itself is going to increasingly seek ways to standardize the laws, as opposed to it being a piecemeal project that emanates from each particular colony. So, for example, when the French start bringing in slaves to Louisiana, they apply the Code Noir, which is a slave code from the Caribbean, the 1685 one. And that is going to be enforced until 1724, when there is a new law, a new Code Noir specific to Louisiana, Louisiana's 1724 Code Noir. What is interesting is that that 1724 law is identical to the law that the French are going to issue for their colonies in the Indian Ocean, and it is called the 1723 Slave Code or Code Noir. And the fact that those two laws are identical and that they're both emanating from the metropole, from France, to be applied in the colonies gives an idea of this search for a standardization, uniformity across the French Empire. And that is quite different from what's going to be taking place in the English colonies, for example, where, where Virginia will have its law, Georgia will have its law, etc., etc. As one result of these laws, there's going to be a key point of distinction, which is pertaining to who gets to testify in court, who gets to appear in court, who has standing to appear in court. And that, too, is going to be, become standardized. And there's another level, which is that French law standardizes the method for recording testimony and court procedures in ways, again, that are different in the English colonies. So why is French law particularly useful for revealing narratives? French law, French criminal law, hinges on testimony as central to judicial procedure. There's an underlying premise, which is that confession is the queen of proofs because only the defendant is deemed to know the truth. Two features of the law are going to emerge from this. One is that answers can be as expansive as a deponent would wish. 
and their answers are going to be recorded in the minutest details. And when I began working on Voices of the Enslaved, my key moment, the aha moment for me in looking at testimony and at these archives was one particular court record in which a young enslaved African was testifying. He's accused of theft. And the clerk is writing down his words, his deposition. And, you know, you have maybe a page or two of question and answer, question and answer. And then at some point, the clerk says, and then Etienne, Etienne is the name of the young man, Etienne said without being asked. And he carries on and he gives another paragraph answer. And you hear the scribe writes down, and then Etienne said again without being asked. And you go on for another page or two or testimony. And then... The scribe again writes, and then Etienne said, again, without being asked. And that was my aha moment, because I realized that the archive really does allow a deponent to speak. So when they appear in court, they can keep going as long as they want. But the second part of that is that the scribe, the clerk of the court, is writing it down. And that is key, because it means that we have a space in the court or within the law to allow a deponent to speak as much as they want, but also a requirement that that testimony be written down. So this is the key factor in understanding why these are so astounding as archives and can be used to reveal narratives. I'll say something about how a scribe writes it down because it's quite a precise process. There are precise rules for writing it down. The clerk listens and writes down in a shorthand version what he's hearing. He then will go off and he will produce a longhand version that he will bring back to court and that will be read in court to the deponent who has an opportunity to correct, to make amendments or not, and has to agree to what was read back to them. And that is the basis for the longhand version that we have in the archive. So there's quite a lot of quality control along the way, and we can see in the court transcripts moments where a scribe will correct things, will cross words out, and they will note this. It will say, you know, at the end, the scribe will say, and we crossed out the word said and replaced it with this, and this phrase was reused. Or the deponent himself will say, well, I said that, but actually this is what I meant, and it will be written in. The, the point being that it is all written down. It's all written down as much as possible. The other part that's interesting in terms of convention is that when the scribe writes down a deponent's testimony, he is very quickly having to produce this shorthand version that's called in French, it's called a plumitif. But when he writes it down, there is a convention to turn that testimony into the third person. So obviously a deponent is saying, I went to the convent and purchased plums, for example. The scribe will change it into deponent said that he went to the convent to buy plums. So we have that convention. They also omit punctuation, which I believe is a factor of having to write this down in shorthand very quickly. But if you look at a deposition or look at one of these records, it's very clear that the scribe is also not adhering to the convention to put everything in the third person because there are slip-ups. And so even though there is no punctuation in the trial record, 
it's very clear when a deponent is switching to dialogue because more often than not, it turns out, as I analyzed, as I did the literary analysis of these sources, more often than not, the clerk will leave those intact. And so for the book, as I produced English translations of the original French, and I keep both the original French quotes in the book as well as English translations, it's very easy to just insert quotation marks because they're that obvious. It is that obvious when a clerk is switching from a third-person testimony to first-person often, but also with, and this is where we might find not only dialogue, I said to Hector, go away, don't come back, that will be in there, but also this is where we might find passages in Creole language that are left intact, figures of speech, metaphors, and it's extremely vivid. This is a very vivid picture that emerges of the oral experience of testifying so that we have the end result, the product that I can use and other scholars can use, is a written record. But within that record, we can hear very strongly this oral aspect that is part of the original. And so those are some of the avenues to using a court record to think about the testimony of people like this young Etienne who can keep talking and who can veer off. He can veer off subject when the scribe keeps talking about him saying again without being asked. This is Etienne spontaneously talking about something else. And usually those moments of veering off subject have nothing to do with the court case. Nothing. And that's important to realize as well. This is where Etienne wants to go, what he wants to talk about. And it's seldom to do with a court case. It doesn't answer the particular question. It goes off on tangents. And once we're attuned to looking for those tangents, even when the scribe does not write, as he does in this case, and said without being asked, you can hear and you can see the moments when a deponent is bearing off subject to something that they want to address. And those are the key moments that emerge and that I analyze in the book. Could you tell us a bit more about the sources you used? The sources are held in the records of the Superior Council of Louisiana. It's an extraordinary archive that has been digitized and is available, therefore. It contains all of the trials that took place in Louisiana, including the slave trials. Louisiana did not have a separate court for slave trials. Of the trials in this collection for the French colonial period, there are about 80 trials pertaining to the enslaved. And of those, and within those, there are maybe 150 different individuals who testify. So the archive is quite substantial from that perspective in terms of actually having access to voices of enslaved individuals, particularly because, as I've just described, the way of transcribing their sources, this possibility of going off on tangents, we have their voices. I also, for the book, looked at trials in other French colonies. I focused in particular on the trials of Mauritius and the Mascarene Islands in the Indian Ocean, which is actually where I'm from. And they are probably, in terms of the slave trials in the French Empire, they're probably second to Louisiana's. After that, 
unfortunately for the Caribbean, the French followed a policy of systematically destroying trials that had slave testimony, so only a handful survive for the comparable period in the 18th century up till about 1770. But I did look at the ones for Martinique in particular, but they're just a handful. So the Louisiana trials are particularly important, not just in terms of the quantity and contrast with other colonies where they don't survive in those same numbers, but also because most of the trials are complete. We have every element of the procedure. There are some provisos. There are some periods when no trials have survived, other changes, but on the whole, it's a pretty extraordinary archive. Beyond the slave trials, obviously, in a a book such as this one, I have to contextualize everything. So there are many other sources that I drew upon, both official correspondence, missionary records, especially in cases where religious orders own enslaved people, looking at also architectural sources to understand the spatial element of what's going on and why and how a particular deponent might come up with a certain metaphor or turn of phrase or why they might want to describe a particular experience and how they did it. So much excavation of other types of sources. And if I can give one example, there is one one court case from 1764 in which Marguerite, a young woman born in West Africa, she self-identifies as from the Congo, and she's arrested for running away. She's found in the slave cabin of another African who identifies as from the Congo, and she has run off to be with him, and she's captured. She is brought to court, and she's asked why she ran away. And she answers, and at at some length, and describes being beaten by her masters, including when she was ill. In the process of describing being ill and being beaten, she mocks her mistress and mimics her. She also describes them threatening her that if she did not get up to work, even when she was ill, they would have the slaves take her to the public square to be whipped publicly, in other words, to use the justice system. But her final point in describing her ill treatment is that she said that at night they locked me up like in the convent. And this set me thinking, because it's an unusual simile or metaphor to describe being locked up like in a convent. And how do we understand that? Well, the only way we can understand it is if we understand first the architecture of New Orleans, where houses are set right on the street and courtyards where the enslaved are and certainly would be spending the night are behind the houses. So a master can control the access of their slaves, stopping them from getting out at night. They can indeed lock her up at night. But it's also important to understand that there's a convent in New Orleans. And so by describing this being locked up like in a convent, we're also getting an idea about her worldview and how she is making sense of her world. This is a woman born in Africa. She has herself been captured. And she is seeing women at the convent who are also locked away. And how does she understand that? How does she actually grasp that there are French women who seem to be locked up, but they seem to be quite happy about it? They're cloistered, these nuns. They're not coming out onto the street. They're staying within the confines of the convent. 
how does someone who's been captured and lands in New Orleans, how does she make sense of that? Especially because these women seem to not have any men. There are, there are no men <laughs> within the convent. And here is Marguerite, who indeed, not only does she run away, but she runs away to be with a man. So we not only see her grasping with the architecture, the spatial element of what's going on in New Orleans, and then faced with these, this convent and these women trapped there, but also women who are adhering to a Catholic model of sexuality that's segregating, you know, certain women, nuns, from men in the same way that she's being stopped and locked up and she runs off to be with a man who we probably should assume is her lover. So just in that very sparse little description, very short little description of testimony, we get an awful lot about her worldview. And this is the element that is important, but also reminds us that we can't just look at the sources. We have to understand what's going on and have a good handle on other types of documents, not just the court records, even though they are central. Could enslaved people, both native enslaved people and enslaved people of African descent, testify in all types of cases? Although the French will enslave Indians, Native Americans, they do not pass specific laws pertaining to their testimony in court. It's therefore quite hard to pass when an enslaved Indian is testifying, and I have one case, one chapter in the book, whether it is because they are follow, making them follow the slave code, the Code Noir, which is specifically about enslaved Africans, or whether it is just following the generic rule about who gets to testify. French law does not prohibit either children or women from testifying, and I think that's important. It is not the case in every colony that's English, but in French law, you can testify as a child or as a woman. And if we look in particular at the kind of testimony we find, we have to draw the distinction first between civil and criminal law. Enslaved people have no standing to appear in civil cases at all. It's explicitly mentioned in the Code Noir that they are not allowed to. Only their masters could testify for them. And there are some cases, for example, a master might file suit or file a deposition because someone has broken into their slaves' quarters and stolen things. It will be the master who can file a deposition or any other kind of civil matter. But Slaves can testify in criminal law. If they are the defendants, they have to testify. They have no choice. For all other cases, they can testify, but only, quote, when it shall be a matter of necessity and only in the absence of whites. But in no case shall they be permitted to serve as witnesses either for or against their masters. So the second part, the rule about testifying for against the masters, is one that's coming in from European law, French law, that applies to servants, for example, or spouses, etc. But this is the key phrase here. If they're defendants, they have to testify. But all other cases, for example, if they're the victim, if they're a witness, they are required to testify when there are no whites. And so that's going to close off quite a lot of testimony that we do not have, but it does still mean that we have a lot of testimony by people who are not defendants, who are not accused, who just happen to be bystanders, who happen to have seen something. We have a couple of rare cases, and I have one of them, where a white soldier 
is the defendant and has attacked enslaved women, and the women get to testify. It's an unusual case, but the law allows it because they were the only witnesses. So this is the, the key aspect, that they can't testify in all cases, only criminal, but within that, it's fairly fluid. Once they've met certain conditions, they can indeed testify. Now, what the courts do with that is another matter, but they can testify. Why do you argue that slaves' judicial testimony should be included in the canon of slave narratives? Look, we have no perfect archive of slave voices. There is no such thing. It doesn't exist. So the first point is that we have to be flexible and we can't take anything for granted. One of the things we have taken for granted for too long is this canon of what constitutes a slave narrative. And the canon is very specific. Even the word slave narrative, we, we all know what it means. We understand that those are associated with the abolitionist movement. They are life stories. They're, they're full biographies generally. But they have a certain structure, and it is a literary genre. And we forget sometimes that this is a literary form of writing. It has rules. And some of the rules are that these are Anglo. These are produced in an English context or an English-speaking context. They're also a Protestant genre. There's a story of redemption that's built into the slave narratives that constitutes this canon. And so if we're looking for that, we're not going to find it in French colonies because they do not have this Protestant trope of personal redemption. It doesn't exist. It's not going to resonate with a Catholic audience. So they're not going to be producing these types of life stories, because they're not going to resonate. If your goal is an abolitionist one, the French public isn't really going to register that this is significant. So the genre itself is very specific to the English experience, both in England and in, in North America, and to this Protestant type of writing, of expression. So I think it's very important to see that for what it is, because if we're only going to be looking for this and not noticing the, the baggage that it carries or its limitations, then we won't see what we could find elsewhere. So I argue for trying to find other ways to come to autobiographical expressions. Now, in a court... A deponent is not going to be giving their life story. They might occasionally if they want to, but that's not going to be the point. And yet I think they can be just as autobiographical in how they express themselves. I just alluded to the case of Marguerite being locked up. I would argue that we can tell quite a lot about her. We can tell a lot about her worldview. The fact that she's mimicking her mistress at some point, making fun of her mistress, she states at some point that when she was ill, her mistress came to see her and said, oh, mademoiselle is being feeling ill, is she? I think we get quite a good sense of Marguerite's personality and her sense of humor and how brave she is in court to be making fun of her mistress because she's going to be sent back to her. And everyone will report these words. The mistress won't be in court with her. But you may well hear, did you know that Marguerite made fun of you in court? 
I think we get a good sense of, of this woman. And why is that not as autobiographical as dictating a life story or, or writing one? I think it's important. So I think we need to be a little bit more flexible because we don't have the luxury to just look for perfect sources. We have to be flexible. And these French colonial archives of testimony are that extraordinary that I think they can provide a different point of entry that gives us maybe a, a sense of immediacy, a sense of spontaneity. Oral storytelling is different. When we're, one is in a court, it's a different experience to thinking about what is going to be written down and rethinking it. It operates under different rules. And so even though a deponent might know what they want to say, they don't know what the questions are. They don't know what an interrogator might have found out in the meantime. They don't know what the other witnesses have said. So there's quite a lot of on the hoof thinking and speaking and shifting course. And I think that element of spontaneity is really quite illuminating, even when one might want to lie, for example. I'll say something else also, that testimony doesn't necessarily tell us what the truth is doesn't really tell us what the facts are. So if I go back to this case of Marguerite, did her mistress really and her master really lock her up at night? Did they really threaten to beat her? Did they really threaten to take her to the public square to be whipped? We don't actually know. We can't know. We don't know. But my point is, does it really matter? Obviously, it matters to a degree. I don't want to be facetious. But is that the most important or is the most important aspect of that testimony that she has chosen to say those words? And also, perhaps even more significantly, how has she chosen to express herself? And it is through this metaphor about the convent. It is through mimicking. It is through showing her personality. I argue that maybe that's more important if we're looking at a a self-expression or words of the enslaved or how they're thinking about themselves, their place in the world that they've been dragged into, maybe that's more important than whether it actually happened. It's how they're narrating it. And so I think this is really key to my project in Voices of the Enslaved, to let go, to let go of a search for empirical fact and instead think a lot more about what it can tell us about the perspective of the person speaking. And that is so rare when we're dealing with the oppressed and those who are not given a voice customarily. Why are the sources used in your work particularly important for revealing the voices of enslaved women? I should start by saying that there's still relatively fewer women who testify. There are more men who are being accused, more male witnesses being brought in who just happen to be somewhere or are being accused of being accomplices. So there are still relatively few, fewer women. However, they are allowed to speak. And it's important to bear in mind that that in itself is quite extraordinary because in many legal regimes, women can't testify. And so they do here, especially as defendants, but also as witnesses. 
as accomplices, etc. And I want to give one example. One of my last chapters is a love story between a woman, Cunet, and her love, Jean-Baptiste. And they are owned by different owners. And they try over many years to try and get, he tries to get his owner to buy her. She tries to get her owner to buy him so that they can be reunited. This doesn't quite succeed. Everyone alludes to negotiations, but they don't succeed. And instead, they run away a couple of times, including the second time where they end up living in a cabin together. At some point, the scribe asks her, because the case hinges on whether she has run away to be with him, therefore, if she's guilty, or if he has abducted her, therefore, he's guilty and she's not. So, this, so she is, the interrogator asks her if she wants to be with him. In other words, was she abducted or did she run away? And she answers yes, but she doesn't just answer yes. She qualifies her answer. It's another one of those going off on tangents. She doesn't need to say it. She could just say yes. She says yes, and that they have been together since the time of Governor Vaudreuil. Governor Vaudreuil left office 14 years before this story. So we know that these two have been together for at least 14 years, and for at least 14 years they've tried to be together. It's a long time. Could be longer than that, because she doesn't specify when during Governor Vaudreuil's term they got together. But to me, that's magic, because it's not just the expression of her desire, her love, and her agency in wanting to be with him, but it's adding that extra element. They've been together. Yes, she does want to be with him, and it's a long-term relationship. This is a strong moment for a court to have to hear. And let's remember, the other side of French law allowing a deponent to talk as long as they want and to give as many answers and, and detours as they want is that the court officials have to listen. They're sitting in judgment. But they have to listen to her as she talks. How often does an enslaved woman get to hold court, literally? How often does she get to just speak and have to have men in authority listen to her? Not very often. And here, sprinkled through these records, we have moments like this where women get to speak and to tell their truth and sometimes to lie and sometimes to, to detour, but they actually get to stand and speak. And I think this is important to remember because we usually, the default position is to think of testimony, particularly if one is accused, as combative, as confrontational, as a negative. And I think we sometimes, especially when we see these tangents and these additional answers that flesh out the record, I think we need to be reminded that it's also a moment of agency for that person speaking. They might well be at risk, and that's what makes these moments even more extraordinary. She's incriminated herself. She's incriminated herself. There is no logic to that answer. There is no strategy that's going to save her. And that's what's magic, because it happens over and over and over again. And I think this is to do with it being an oral performance. There are different rules. She incriminates herself by saying that. And yet, 
if we ask ourselves, well, why did she? What was the logic? Maybe the logic is not the usual one of I'm in court, therefore I need to be careful and I need to save myself. Maybe the logic is I want them to know that I have a relationship, that it's meaningful to me, and that for at least 14 years I pursued it. Maybe that's more important than what will happen in the end. So the court cases are vital. They're crucial. They give us the apparatus and they give us the source. But we almost want to just let go of it at some point and just see where the testimony goes and move away from, back to this point, away from the facts of the case, away from the truth, away from all of that aspect and just think about what else is left hanging. And what's left hanging for me is the story of a woman who can express something about her desires. And if we then take a step back and think about what it would mean to be an enslaved woman in the context of Louisiana, her masters have control over who she can marry. They have to give their permission. French law does allow the enslaved to marry in the Catholic Church, which means these are legal marriages with protections. Under the Code Noir, a married couple cannot be sold separately. A married couple, if they have children, the children cannot be sold away from that couple until the children reach the age of 12. There are no such protections in the laws of English colonies. So it's really quite extraordinary whether they're always applied is another matter, but if it's a Catholic legal marriage, there are rules and there are safeguards. Hence, when we have this couple trying to get the other's owner to buy them, we have to think about French law, because if they did end up in the same ownership or somehow managed to be married legally, they would have protections. But we have to think that for the vast majority of these women, they might not have such protections. Their children are going to be owned by the masters. And so to be able to speak in court about their affective lives, I think is very important. And this comes through over and over and over again in the archives, not just in testimony of women, but also men. Their relationships are so important. Intimacy is important. They're talking about the intimacy that they might want, whether it's in courtship, love, marriage, children, feelings towards their children but also uh, critiquing the forced intimacy of a master who might be, you know, violent, who might violate them or whether sexually or otherwise. So the records are quite extraordinary on that level. On the other hand, and nonetheless, there are silences. There are some things that are left unsaid. We know that sexual violence against enslaved women is endemic. There are no references to it. It is not brought up in the court record by enslaved women. There is hearsay testimony, oddly enough, by colonists, but the women cannot bring that into court. Even they know that there are limits to what they can speak in court, certainly in the trials in Louisiana. But nonetheless, it's an extraordinary archive because we have so few voices of women. How might West African judicial practices have influenced opponents in Louisiana? I think the first thing to remember is that judicial practices don't exist in a void. People come with notions of what justice might mean. 
Now, Louisiana is interesting because after 1731, there are no more shipments of slaves. So the population is going to become increasingly homogenous. And most slaves are going to be born in the colony. And that's how the, the slave increase is going to come from reproduction, not from new slaves coming in from West Africa, certainly between 1731 and very close to the end of the French regime. So maybe there's a lesser element of knowledge of West African judicial practices, except maybe through hereditary means, a, a father talking to his son, etc. But nonetheless, I think we have to remember this, that the, these... French judicial practice don't exist in a void. Defendants from different cultural and judicial models don't come to court lacking a knowledge of how you might determine someone's guilt, whether someone took something from you or not. And there's quite a lot of evidence sprinkling the record. These are judicial records, and yet they allude a lot to extrajudicial investigations, punishments, etc., including among slaves themselves. So one of the things I, I looked at in thinking about this archival body is how someone from West Africa might deal with being interrogated. Giving a deposition is a form of storytelling in a way. And so what are the storytelling traditions in West Africa? How might that inform the way that one would stand and tell a story? There's also how they might determine guilt. So I thought about divination rituals in West Africa, how they might determine guilt. There is apparatus, there's paraphernalia, just as there is in French courts. You know, there is a scribe who's holding, who's holding a plume to produce the plumitif. There's paper. There's how the judges sit in the court. French law and including for these slave trials, determination of guilt is made by judges. There are no juries. And also in Louisiana, there are no lawyers. Both in Louisiana and in the Indian Ocean masquerine colonies, when the French issued this Code Noir of 1723 and 1724, they specified there will be no lawyers. All they're doing is trying to cut down on frivolous lawsuits, and yet the end result is there are no lawyers to represent a defendant. They're having to come up with their testimony on their own, not to say there isn't help from their owners, for example, or, or other slaves, and we can find that evidence, but there are different rules. So, okay, no lawyers, but still there's a room, there's a crucifix on which they have to swear to tell the truth. There's a lot of ritual and elements that is not, not going to be alien to someone who's seen the execution of justice in West Africa, for example, or another colony. So I think that's important. Something else that we are finding out about more and more in Louisiana, for example, and I suspect in other colonies, there are secret male societies in Louisiana that are going to develop, and they're going to have quite strong ties to West African secret all-male societies. One of these groups is going to emerge from a free black militia of men who are freed after they've fought for the French in the Chickasaw War, but there'll be other means to this. And one of their goals and rules is to keep order within their communities. If we, um, it's obviously quite hard to find this evidence, but in one court case that I discuss, there's clear evidence of the enslaved co-opting French, the French court system to settle scores among themselves. They don't hesitate when needed if one slave is stolen from another slave, they might well be willing to 
have that slave be taken to court and they will testify against them and they might even turn them into the authorities. So there is quite a lot of co-opting of the court system too within African communities. So we find quite a lot of evidence of that sprinkled throughout. But I think just as a general rule, I think we have to not come in with a view that here we have a European legal model and, you know, who are these poor, hapless, enslaved Africans who are, who are faced with it? They're not altogether removed from thinking about justice and judicial practice and the rituals that might be tied to that. Okay, well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. You are so welcome. It was a thrill to talk about Voices of the Enslaved.